Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the podcast. Coming to you live from a balcony in a hotel in Queensland. Surface Paradise got a four-day uh, weekend here. Took a bit of annual leave, so uh, we're enjoying a bit of nicer weather. It's so cold in Melbourne, and it's so lovely up here in Queensland. So, apologies if this podcast sounds bad. I'm not sure how this little microphone headpiece thing is going to sound, but we'll carry on anyway. We're talking about book two, chapter 16.1. Didn't quite get through it all. Um, no comments? Um, so, I guess we just keep reading. I mean, there's no one had much to say about this one. Wait, did I have a discussion prompt? I don't even think I had that. <laughs> I did have a discussion prompt. Uh, I said, hey, religious people, no one cares. Um, at this point, I'm just sick of this guy, like this George just going on about religion and on and on and on and on about it. It's tedious. It's uninteresting. I know that back in the day it was all the rage. It was the most interesting topic in the world, but I would like to think that even back then I still would just not have cared. And I'm kind of calling George a religious person here. And I think maybe he's an agnostic. Is he an agnostic? Um, so maybe technically not really a religious person. But I don't really even know if he's an agnostic or not. Um, that's how little I care about this book, even though he's been going on and on about it forever. Um, <coughs> yeah. Uh, but my feelings on that is like if you're an atheist or an agnostic or whatever you are and all you do is talk about religion even if it's to like debunk it or whatever you're you're religious you know if 99% of your existence revolves around religion even if it is countering the points of it that's a religious life if you ask me because I don't know like, either care about it or don't care about it. If you're going to claim to be agnostic or ag- atheist, then just stop caring about it, please. Stop talking about it. Um, anyway, don't you? Would you like to hear very much? Let's continue. I'll give you three excellent reasons. I look upon Protestantism as a sort of safeguard. A sort of vaccine? Just so. If the agnostic catches the smallpox, he generally catches it in an acute form and 95% can remain in the religion they are brought up in. Isn't that so? Well, let us hear your second reason. Protestantism supplies a book out of which the child can learn. I think it is John Eglinton who says in one of his essays that however beautifully a book may be written, it will not be read by the multitude for the sake of its style. Shakespeare is read in England, for England produced Shakespeare. And the Bible is read in England, for the Bible produced Protestantism. Protestantism produced the Irish Bible and one beautiful book and how the Catholics are forbidden to read it. A stupid prohibition, but the difference between the Catholic and the Protestant version is so slight that not one reader in 10,000 would be able to trace it. Yes, isn't it stupid, but what is it to be done? I can think of nothing, can you? We learned no English or Oscot, any English I know, isolated Sussex out of the prayer book and gossiping with the labourers ballasts and especially the gamekeepers. Gamekeepers speak the best English. I can't tell why, but it is so. 
a new reason for preserving the game laws, a sally at which we both laughed, but I was going to give you a third reason for my preference for Protestantism. Protestantism engenders religious discussion. Do you admit that? Indeed I will. And can imagine nothing more useless or tedious. Useless it may be to the Catholic who goes from the cradle to the grave with every point of interest settled for him. How then can Catholics be intelligent? We know they're not, but what is much more interesting is the fact that they know themselves they are not intelligent. They admit it freely. At dinner the other day I met a Catholic and spoke to him on this subject. He answered me that the Catholic religion absorbed a man's mind so completely that no energy is left for literary activities, only enough for the practical business of life. I hate Catholics who speak like that. They're worse than Protestants. They, there are Uriah heaps, I admit, and plenty of them in our church. Servant maids and working folk are quite free from hypocrisy, and often I've heard them say, it's strange we don't get on as well as Protestants. Once I heard a beggar in Galway saying there must be something in Protestants, since they get on so well in the world. A wiser man than you, my dear friend, or shall I say a less prejudiced one. You remember I told you there was no Catholic literature when you were last in Dublin, but I only half stated my case. The discussion wandered into an argument about Newman. And what have you discovered since then? That Russian literature is against you, Scandinavian too, and worst of all, North and South America. The mention of North and South America roused the colonel, and he did not hesitate to say that it always astonished him that North America had produced so little literature. <clears throat> I believe that South America can show some records of missionary work done among the Indians. The colonel replied that South America was colonised much later than North America, an answer which angered me, for I knew that the colonel was relying on my ignorance of history. The first colonisations were made in Peru and Brazil, you know that very well, but what can it profit you to insist that Catholics have written books since the Reformation? What can it profit you to deny facts? Of course, there is a book or two, one percent, two percent of the world's literature, but if you were to tell me that there is no Negro literature, you would think me very stupid. If I were to answer yes, there is, I can produce a good many songs from Haiti, and I once knew a Negro who had written a novel. Catholic literature has declined steadily since the Reformation, and today it is one degree better than Sambo. No sooner had the words passed my lips than I saw I had, as the phrase goes, given myself away. For the Negroes are nearly all Methodists or Wesleyans, and I mentioned the fact to Colonel, feeling sure that if I did not do so, he would mention it himself. But he refused to accept my suggestion, saying that he had once believed that religion was race and climate, but he thought so no longer. He has sunk deeper into Catholicism than I thought, for he believes now in a universal truth. For him there is no hope. But I cannot allow his children to perish without saying a word in their favour, and I spoke of Rory and Toby again. My children will have a good, as good a chance of making their way as I have, have had. I was brought up Catholic. Why shouldn't your children have a better chance? The only way, said the impassable colonel, that children may be educated is either by abolishing religious education in the schools, and nobody is in favour of that, or by sending them to schools in which they will be taught the religion of their parents. But what you call bringing up children in the religion of their parents is estranging them from every other influence. 
until they become incapable of thinking for themselves. Give me a child till he's 14 and I don't care who gets him afterwards. There is no question of religious truth. There is no such thing. We know that. What concerns me is that your next, your truth is being forced upon your boys to the exclusion of every other. You keep them from me lest they should hear mine. I hope you will never say anything in the presence of my child, children, that would be likely to destroy their faith. I rely on your honour. It is no part of my honour to withhold the truth, or what I believe to be the truth, from any human being. The fact that you happen to be their father doesn't give you the right over their minds to deform and mutilate them as you please, any more than it gives you the right to mutilate their bodies, gelding and splaying. You don't claim such rights, do you? And do you claim the right to seek my children out and destroy their faith? Can you define the difference between faith and superstition? The right is, I claim, is that of every human being to speak what he believes to be the truth to whomever he may meet on his way. Brotherhood doesn't forfeit me that right. But I am to understand that you will seek my children out. Seek them out? No. But do you keep them out of my way? But if you think like this, you'd have been done better not to have married a Protestant. I suppose your children believe their mother will go to hell. And if you love Ireland as well as you profess to, why did you go into the English army? It's impossible for me to continue this argument any longer. Your intention being to say what you think will wound me most. What you have just said I know to have been said with a view to wounding my feelings. No, but to express my mind so they're not to get a chance, well, it's a shame. Why shouldn't their mother have um, as much voice as you have in their education. Why shouldn't I have a voice? In the education of my children? We haven't an idea in common. We are as much separated as though we came from the ends of the earth. Yet we were brought up together in the same house. We learnt the same lessons. The colonel walked out of the room suddenly, and I heard him take his hat from the table in the, in the hall and go out to the house. The door closed behind him, and I sat in the silence, alarmed by his sudden departure. It seemed to me that I could see him walking, hardly conscious of the street he was passing through, absorbed by the horrible quarrel that had been thrust upon us, as quarrel that might never, and I began to quake at the thought that we might never be friends again. The argument had been conducted in quite a friendly spirit, here and there a little heated, but no more, till words had been put into my mouth that wounded him to the quick, sending him out of the house. He would come back and forgive me, no doubt, but was it sure that he would? And even if he did, the quarrel would begin again the next time we met. The discussion had never ceased since the day he had unsuspectingly come up from Mayo to argue against me that literature and dogma are not incompatible. No matter what the subject of our conversation might be, it drifted sooner or later into religious argument, into something about Protestants and Catholics, and a moment after we were angry, hostile, alienated. Since boyhood our lives had been lived apart, but we had been united by mutual love and remembrances, and as the years went by, we had begun to dream that the end of our lives should be lived out together. We had written 
from South Africa that there was no one he would care to live with as much as with me, and no words that I can call upon can tell the eagerness with which I awaited his return from the Boer War. He was coming home on six months' leave, and three of these he spent with me in Eli Place, delightful months in which we seemed to realise the dearest wishes of our hearts. Our common, common love of Ireland brought us closer together than we had hoped was possible, and then bitterness, strife, disunion. He had been an idol in my eyes, and my idol lay broken in pieces about me. Broken, and by whom? God knows. Not by me, I swear it. That he would not write a book about camp life in South Africa was a disappointment to me. His dilatoriness in getting grandfather's manuscript in order was another. And now his sticking to Catholicism despite the proofs that I had laid before him in its inherent illiteracy had estranged us completely. An endless whirl of thoughts and a sudden pause on a recollection of the words I had used. If you hate Protestantism, why did you marry a Protestant? There could be no great harm in saying that. A man who has been married for fifteen years generally knows his wife's religion, nor in the remark that followed it that notwithstanding his love of Ireland he had gone to the English army, for a man does not go into the English army and remain in it for thirty years without knowing that he is in it. And I began to wonder if he had gone into the army because he was afraid he could not make his living in any other way. What was there? behind his mind, far back in it, some little little flickering thought that if Ireland rose against English dominion he would be able to bring to the services of his country the tactics he had learnt in the enemy's ranks. A sentiment of that kind would be very like him, and I fell to thinking of him following his life from the beginning of his manhood up to the present time. All his dreams had been of the Irish race, of its literature, of its traditions, and his clinging to Catholicism can be accounted for by his love of Ireland. Or was it that his mind lacked elasticity, and that he failed at the right moment to twist himself out of this theological snare? It must have been so, for one day, while playing at Red Indians in the woods of Moor Hall, during a rest under the lilac bush at Groves at the turn of the drive, I had asked him if he intended to continue to believe all the priest said about his sacraments and about God. A look came into his face and he answered that he couldn't do without it, meaning religion, but why that religion, I asked. The idea of changing his religion seemed to frighten him even more than dropping religion altogether and he has persisted in that faith, trying to believe all it enjoins his thoughts and his deeds going down parallel lines, a true Irishman, his dreams always in conflict with reality. It seemed to me that some time had passed, for when I awoke from my reverie I was thinking of Balzac, thinking that I had read somewhere that it is not ideas which divide us, but les chocs de caricatures. Balzac must have written very casually when he wrote that, for surely the very opposite is the case. Men are drawn together by their ideas, temperament counts for nothing or for very little but it is temperament i said that creates our ideas and my mind reverted to the colonel and he stood up in my mind ireland in essence the refined melancholy of her mountains and lakes and her old castles crumbling along among the last echoes of the dying language in his face 
so refined, melancholy, I could trace a constant conflict between dreams and reality, and it is this conflict that makes Ireland so unsuccessful. But I stop, perceiving that I am falling into the stuff one writes in the newspapers. Why judge anybody? Analyse, state the case. That is interesting, but pass no judgments, for all judgments are superficial and transitory. The Colonel has always been a sentimentalist. Something seemed to break in my mind. Yes, a sentimentalism. A sentimentalist. He has always been. Now I understand him, and I thought for a long while, understanding not only my brother, but human nature much better than I had done at the beginning of the evening. It was like looking under the waves, seeing down to the depths where strange vegetation moves and lives. The waves flowed on and on, and I peered, and I dreamed, and I thought, awakening suddenly with the cry upon my lips, freed from the artificial life of the army, he is now to follow an idea, and the gale loves to follow an idea rather than a thing. The more shadowy and elusive the idea, the greater the enchantment it lends, and he follows the ghost of his language now with outstretched arms. But how little feeling there is in me, I cried, starting up from my chair, my brother all this while walking the streets, his heart rent, and I sitting, meditating, dissecting him, arguing with myself. Now the question to be settled was whether I should go to bed, or wait for him to come in. To go to bed would be wiser and speak to him in the morning, but I should lie awake all night thinking. It seemed impossible to go to sleep until some understanding had been arrived at. And that is the end of the chapter. Uh, thanks for listening.